Hi, I'm Dee Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. All righty, let's try this one. I had one of these in a previous podcast. I'm not sure what order these drop in, but uh, I had one of these in a previous podcast that was recorded a couple of days ago, and uh, it's the Fat Bottom Betty by the Deadwood Tobacco Company. This is a great cigar. I talked at length about it. I'm, I'm sure it survived the edits, so you heard a little bit about it, but man, it's so good that I decided today I'd have another one of these, and it is a delightful, delightful cigar. Let's light this thing. And let's get going. Ah, mm. copious amounts of smoke filling up the studio on this beautiful Friday evening. I'm recording this one on a Friday evening. What a great week I had. A wonderful time. Was able to spend time with some friends in Washington, D.C. I know everyone complains because nothing ever happens in Washington, D.C., but you know what? We had a great time with a bunch of friends for a couple of days. Flew back there together and uh, really enjoyed the city and the weather. We were there between snowstorms, which is a great time to be in D.C., but... I have found that most of the time in my experience with folks who are in D.C., they're just happy people, just really enjoying life, even though they all know their jobs are a complete waste of time. <laughs> now, maybe that, maybe that's not right. The folks that we were with, they were, they're, uh, they're actually really effective. And no, they're not elected officials and not employees of the federal government in some way. They're there for other reasons. But we had a great time. Anyway, so great week, really enjoyable. Alaska Airlines treated us well. They always do. We uh, had a wonderful flight attendant who was just so engaging and so funny. And uh, she had worked several days, I think, several days in a row. So you would expect her to be really tired, but uh, she wasn't. She was just very lively, very, very enjoyable. So here we are on a Friday night recording. If you were here, I'd give you one of these Drew Estates Deadwood Tobacco Fat Bottom Betty Cigars. It's a Connecticut Maduro wrapper and a Nicaraguan binder and filler. Very well done. And it's uh, it draws perfectly. It's a beautiful cigar. I really like these. Got a couple boxes of these given to me. Great cigar. What shall we do? Let me put that down because this is a two-hander here. What shall we do with this by way of a bourbon? Let's do a George Remus. Now, George Remus was a horrible human being. <laughs> Apparently, I read a little bit about the guy. He's called the King of the Bootleggers. Apparently, he was uh, quite the violent fellow, but uh, hopefully this bourbon that I'm going to have, the George Remus Straight Bourbon Whiskey. This one is a 94 proof bourbon distilled in, let me see, where is it distilled? It's distilled in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Oh, all right. Okay. So this one is a, as an MGP. That's right. This is an MGP bourbon. There's a couple of different kinds of George Remus. This is not the, this is not the real high end one. This is probably the, this one. I think I paid like $30 for this bottle because I couldn't find the other George Remus. I'm going to pour a little bit of this over one ice cube. There we go. Uh, you know, I had this before, but I don't remember it. 
So that means it's either not really, really good or not really, really bad. <laughs> we'll see. Let me smell it. See what it smells like. It smells a little bit like, uh, oh, there we go. Okay. A little bit like cherry. Oh, that's interesting. A little bit like cherry or some other berry. Cherry berry. <laughs> cherry. A little bit of vanilla. Can always get that vanilla in bourbon. Maybe I'm talking myself into it, but a little bit of vanilla. It's, it's kind of subtle. Very subtle. Hmm. Cherry, vanilla, cinnamon roll. Ooh, doesn't that sound good? Hmm. All right, let's take a sip. Let's see how, let's see what it does. Hang with me here. Hmm. Oh yeah. You know what? It tastes a little bit like, after that little 94 proof alcohol burn kind of fades away, it actually tastes like cherry. Not super strong, very, very subtle. That's actually pretty good. And now after having sipped it and that sat there for a while and I'm breathing off the alcohol, mm, I can taste it in the front of my mouth more than in the back of my mouth, but it's quite good, quite good. If you were here, I would offer you some and see if you tasted it as well. Sometimes when we have folks and friends around or family around and we taste bourbon, we all decide what we taste before we say it so we don't have that power of suggestion thing that says this tastes like ajax and then everyone says you're right i got ajax out of it <laughs> you know the power of suggestion we don't use that so we'll all decide what it tastes like and then when we've decided then we say without changing our minds so you might not taste cherry who knows maybe you would taste just oak like you just licked the inside of a of an oak drawer or something. <laughs> if you don't drink bourbon and you hear me describe this, uh, there are people who actually know what they're doing that describe the taste of bourbon. I don't. I just tell you what it tastes like to me. <laughs> I'm by no means an expert by any means. So you might think, why would someone drink something that tastes like the inside of a sock drawer? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, it doesn't. It tastes like It tastes like someone put a cherry pie in a brand new sock drawer and let it sit there for a couple of days and then you get to smell it and taste it. And you're wrinkling up your nose. I know you, I know you right now, you're wrinkling up your nose thinking, and that's why I don't drink bourbon. <laughs> uh, my wonderful grandson, Brody, was over overnight a couple of nights ago. He and his grandma, Julie, were watching TV. They were watching a, a documentary about a young lady who's a surfer in Hawaii and had a very unfortunate um, engagement with a shark and lost part of her right arm. The whole thing about how she went through that, how she recovered and went back to surfing, and Julie and Brody were watching that. And at the very end of it, credits roll. Brody, six years old, turns beautiful, beautiful boy, turns and looks at Julie and folds his arms and says... And that's why I don't surf. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> as though, as a six-year-old, he's had many, many opportunities to surf and decided not to. <laughs> anyway, you might have that reaction as I describe in my amateurish way what bourbon tastes like. And you might say, and that's why I don't drink bourbon. Or you might be somebody who likes to live on the edge. You like to have an adventure. So you're going to go out and get a bottle of George Remus, king of the bootleggers, and ignore how rotten he was as a human being, and uh, try this and realize it does taste like oak and cherry. Send me an email. If you have a bottle of this, send me an email. You know my email. It's dhicks at dhicks.com. Send me an email. Tell me if you have this bourbon and you tasted it, what did it taste like to you? And it goes quite well with this really good Drew Estates fat bottom Betty <laughs> cigar that went out. It went out. Jeez, I'm standing here talking so much without enjoying the cigar that the cigar went out. The light, the joy of the cigar went out there like that. Mm -mm. There we go. Mm -hmm. I always have to say it. You're hearing an old school Zippo that 
probably a 30 or 50 year old Zippo. It just doesn't have the same interior. Uh, it has a completely different insert in it that's designed specifically for cigars. So it's not that Zippo diesel fuel that I'm lighting a cigar with. So if, if you're wincing right now and you hear that clicking sound, you hear this, and you think he's using a Zippo. Well, it's just the Zippo cartridge. I mean, the Zippo case, the, the cartridge on the inside of it is designed for cigars. All right, so there we go. We're all set up. We're ready to go. What do you think? What do you think? You are part of an enterprise in some way where you're trying to grow either the entire organization for profit or not for profit or there's something within the organization where you're trying to make it work better you want it to grow what do you do when you start off and you're excited about causing something to grow and it just doesn't happen everyone starts moving and then you go back to the way you were what what is up with that and then you can get discouraged and frustrated and think well i guess the idea just wasn't good enough timing wasn't right and you move on to something else and you announce let's grow everyone claps their hands let's go let's go and then you start moving and then growth doesn't happen what is going on I would like to share with you something we've discovered over the years that is profound. It's fairly short, but it's quite profound. When growth doesn't happen the way you expect it. Let's start by talking about the idea that you and I live in a very structured environment because we're human beings. Human beings create structure. Of course, we live within a system. We live within nature, which is also very structured. But let's zoom in on the structure of your organization. And structure is a great big deal. It's important to understand structure. In fact, over the years, we developed a problem-solving and an opportunity-maximizing model called the SLY approach to solving problems. And the S in SLY stands for structure. 80% of our problems in the workplace come from structure that caused the problem. And then about 15% of the challenges we face come from L, the L in SLY, which is leadership. That means leaders did not clarify their expectations. They didn't build bridges. They didn't remove barriers, but mostly they didn't clarify expectations. And then the Y in the SLY approach, which is about 5% of our problems come from you, the individual. So most of the time you will experience a problem and it shows up in that Y category, the U category. In fact, 100% of the time, whenever you and I see a problem, it's because a person does something and we realize that person didn't perform at the level they're supposed to perform at. They didn't follow through. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. So we think all of our problems are because we have the wrong people doing the wrong things. When in fact, that's really not the case. Most of the time, 80% of the time, whenever you and I experience a problem, there's an opportunity out there and we're not able to maximize it, for example. It's because of the structure, the structure around that or the sea in which that problem floats will not allow us to solve that and solve it in an enduring way. We call that structure. And to borrow from Robert Fritz, who wrote a book called The Path of Least Resistance. Thank you very much, Tim, for recommending that book. Great book. I enjoyed it a lot. To borrow from him, he, he identifies structure as either physical structure or non-physical structure. A physical structure is like a wall or a door or a road or plumbing or electricity or something like that. Okay, that's physical structure. Non-physical structures are structures that are primarily like regulations or their laws put in place or their habits or traditions or disciplines, that sort of thing. But the most powerful of all of our structures, which is a non-physical structure, is our set of mental models. And we've talked about this many times before in some of our podcasts. And I'm, a, I'm just such a fan of thinking about and understanding and trying to make visible and talk clearly about our mental models. As you remember from some of our other podcasts, our mental models are what we believe to be true. They're mental constructs that we put in place to enable us to function in the world. 
and our survival brain is fairly lazy, doesn't want to spend a lot of time and energy, so it makes up constructs of the world around us that we call truth or assumptions or mental models, and then it just lives within them. And what I believe is true is a mental model. And they can be very robust, very, very sophisticated. Like a worldview, for example, is a mental model or a series of mental models. Or they can be very, very simple. That a simple mental model like tall people are smarter than short people. Or short people have more energy than tall people. Or something like that. Or people with blue eyes are more intellectual. And people with brown eyes are much more passionate. Or something like that. And these have like one or two facts behind them. But then a thousand things we've just made up. <laughs> right? So our mental models can be accurate or not. Um, they can be close to reality or not. They can be current. They can be outdated. But once we believe something is true, then our brain just starts to look for things that support that. That's called confirmation bias. We've talked a lot about that. It's great stuff. It's fun. You and I as leaders, managers, influences of people are responsible for hearing, seeing, understanding, mental models. We are responsible for hearing that tune that is being sung around us all the time and making sense of it. And most people don't hear it at all. We are, to borrow a phrase, we are responsible for hearing the dog that doesn't bark. And uh, that's the quiet of a mental model in the background that really shapes everything we say and everything we do. So when growth doesn't happen, it's sometimes because we have physical structures that make it hard to happen. And so we these physical structures resist growth. But often when growth doesn't happen the way we want it to is quickly as we want it to, as profoundly as we want it to, it's because of the most powerful of our non-physical structures, which are our mental models. It's something we believe to be true. So here's the deal. You have announced some kind of growth. You've all come together. You've wrapped your mind around it. It's time to grow. And everyone says, yeehaw, let's grow. And then as you start to move into the reality of the growth, into the implementation of the growth, you experience unexpected resistance. Things are slower than you thought. People are less engaged than you thought they would be. The Money didn't show up when you thought it would show up. There's resistance to growth that occurs. There is what I like to call a grow or slow tension that exists. A grow, slow tension that exists. There are forces within your enterprise, people with ideas and attitudes, that want to grow and grow quickly and grow well, right? And then there are people and attitudes within your organization that say, oh, no, 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 not so fast. But you didn't experience that upon the announcement of the idea. You only experienced it subsequently. Let's illustrate this. So you're a part of an organization, perhaps, that has people who I might think of as idea people or yes people. Maybe they're sales people, for example. They're responsible for selling an idea to a new customer base or selling an idea to a new constituents in some way. They are the idea people. They're the acquisition people. They're the yes people. They are the go people that say, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. They're all excited about it. Then you have another group of people who are the implementation people, who are the ones that have to actually make it happen. And those people are the, uh, not so fast people. They're the people who say, yeah, maybe we can do that, but it's going to cost more. It's going to take longer, or, or this is going to be in the way. They're the ones who quickly go to, how the heck are we going to get this done? All right. That tension is very obvious in organizations. And spoiler alert, when I get to the end of this in a few minutes, I'm going to suggest to you that that is a good tension. It's not a tension that you want to relieve. If you have a whole bunch of people who are the go people when it's time to grow, and no one who is the, ooh, slow down, pump the brakes, snookums, 
people, you will go off the edge of a cliff. Things will be much more expensive than you anticipated and the failures will be a lot greater. So the tension, cut to the chase here, is a good tension. Question is, how do we actually manage it? Well, let's understand a couple of things. Thing one, <laughs> growth means change. We all know that. And when we look forward at growth, some of us think, awesome, it's about time. I can't wait for that change. And we see the change as a reward. But some of us understand growth means change, and we see the change as a threat. I had a friend say to me a while back about those who are in the fire service. He's a chief in a fire department, and he said to me a while back, I have never seen so many people in any profession that wants change so badly but doesn't want to do anything differently. <laughs> Isn't that great? Wow, that is so, so, so true. If you sit down with firefighters, two or three of them together in any environment, they will very quickly start complaining about what needs to change. This needs to change, and that needs to change, and this needs to change. And you'll think, wow, they're probably right. And then when it gets down to the implementation of the change, every one of them, to a man and woman, doesn't want to actually do anything personally to bring about that change. <laughs> oh, Oh, you gotta love them. You gotta love them. But I don't think it's restricted to the fire service. Everybody loves change as long as it's an idea, but nobody wants to do anything differently. <laughs> what we want is for the situation around us to change, but for our precious little habits and disciplines and routines to not change. We want other people to change, but we don't really want to change. There's something to this that's pretty significant. It's what I call the change envelope. We like change as long as it doesn't mean that we change anything more than, say, 5% of our life. And that change, that 5%, needs to be very easy and very rewarding. That change envelope means that at any given time, we all walk around wanting our lives to be about 95% the way they are right now. And that change, that 5% change, needs to happen, we all think, so incrementally that we don't even actually notice. You're probably thinking, well, that doesn't describe me. Well, have you changed toothpaste recently? Have you changed your phone? Have you upgraded your phone or updated the apps on your phone? What about the pants you're wearing? Are they the same brand that they were a while back? What about the breakfast you have? Oh, no, I don't always eat the same breakfast. It's uh, No, I change it up. I'll bet you only have three or four different kinds of breakfasts that you eat. What about your dental floss? <laughs> what about your car? What about the belt you're wearing? On and on it goes. Most of the time, the change that we have is just barely a change in our lives. And that's the same when it comes to our organizations. We don't like a lot of change, even though in theory we say it's great. Now, most of us experience change when it's announced in advance as a bit of a threat. Let's remember that when we experience the world around us, we are constantly trying to filter everything that we experience and put it into one of two buckets. We've talked about this many times. It's either a threat bucket or a reward bucket. Although we react to that threat or reward as though it's truly a threat or reward, that's not actually what's going on. It's just a reaction to something that we think might be a threat or think might be a reward. 
reward. How many times have you thought, oh, there's no way in hell I'm going to accept that change. And then you accept it and then you live in it for a while and then you rewrite history and think that's the best thing that ever happened. I was always in favor of that. <laughs> no, you weren't. I do it too. Same thing. It's because we have this change envelope. We like most things to be fairly certain. We don't want a lot of surprises. And even people who love lots of change, maybe their change envelope is like 10%. <laughs> it's certainly not 70 or 80% at all. Therefore, we experience most change, especially change that's outside of our control in theory and in concept as a threat. Remember uh, David Rock's book that I've referenced many, many times called Your Brain at Work? Well, it's really worth reading. I enjoy it a lot and, uh, and have referred to it many, many times. He's taken a lot of research from a whole bunch of different quadrants and put it together in a super portable way. Uh, Your Brain at Work, uh, I think the subtitle is something about strategies uh, for overcoming distraction and getting focused and working smarter all day long or something like that. But he's got some just really cool ideas. And one of the most portable of his ideas is this concept that flows from the reality that you and I perceive the world around us always looking for threats or rewards. And then if it is a threat or a reward, it's going to fall into one of five categories. We're going to think of it as a threat that is a threat to our status. That is, do you recognize my value? Do you see me? To our certainty, that's uh, we want 95% of things around us to be fairly certain. Now, he doesn't say the 95%. That comes from other research that we were engaged in. But we want things to be fairly certain, fairly predictable. And by fairly, I mean like 95%. And then we want a level of autonomy. We don't want you to take away from me what I've been able to decide and arrange and organize before. Don't step in and say, now you can't decide that. It's now up to someone else. We don't want to have to submit to other people's authority, especially people who are far away and don't understand the environment in which we work. We want things to be certain. We want autonomy. And we want to be able to relate to people. We want to have relationships with people that are enjoyable. And then we want things to be fair and just. If you listen carefully to that, the first letter of each of those forms the word scarf. So the scarf approach here is that we want our status to not be threatened. We want our certainty and our autonomy and our relationships and a sense of fairness or justice to not be threatened. That's the SCARF model, the SCARF concept that I've borrowed from. Memorize that because when you and I experience change or when change is announced, we will immediately sift that change through the SCARF model. And we will resist the change if we feel like it threatens our status or our certainty, our autonomy, or the relationships that we've got right now that are worthwhile, or our sense of fairness and justice. So this means that the go people in your organization, when growth is announced or envisioned, are people who see that the change will be a reward for them in many of those five areas. And the uh, slow down, wait a second, people, the slow people, the people who want you to slow things down will experience that change as a threat to them in their status or, or their relationships or their sense of fairness or justice. All right. And it happens really, really quickly because this all flows out of our limbic systems extremely fast. So when you announce a change and you say, let's let's grow, let's make this happen over here, which means change, then folks are going to in a nanosecond and probably one twentieth of a second resist if they're going to resist at all. They will resist very, very quickly from a limbic level, limbic system resisting. They'll feel a sense of resistance is what I'm saying before there are actually words that go with it. And it comes from a perception that one of those five areas is going to be threatened. So every growth initiative creates a go response because this is seen by many as a reward or a, ooh, slow, slow down, wait a second, pump the brakes response because they see the growth as some sort of a threat to one of those five areas.
And this relates to adding new members to the team. This relates to hiring new firefighters. It relates to a new apparatus or new equipment. It relates to schedules and compensation or opening another office or opening another factory or a new model or a new whatever. Anytime there's growth on the horizon, and I think it in any way relates to me, I'm going to be a grow, go, or slow kind of person. And there's a tension between those two kind of people. All right, this is a big deal, and it's not a bad tension, but I recognize that it exists. What do you do about this now? All right, let me relight my cigar, and I want you to ponder for one second. Game show music right here. I want you to ponder for a second. Okay, what do we actually do about it? Now that you've seen this, I know you've experienced it. I've just given you words to describe it. What do we do? Time to relight the cigar. Mmm. This is a five inch long cigar and it's a 50 ring gauge. So it's a good size cigar. It's not so big that I look like um, I'm a mafia don or something like that, you know, but it's a nice cigar. It's a good hour to smoke the way I smoke cigars because I let them go out all the time. Mm, there we go. Fill this up with smoke. Mm -mm. If you were sitting right over there in one of those two leather cigar chairs, you'd be enjoying one of these as well. And if you weren't enjoying one of these, then um, I wouldn't have invited you. <laughs> and a little sip of the George Rotten Human Being Remus bourbon. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. All right. What do we do about this? Here's an idea. Number one, realize and talk about the fact that change is learning. It is exactly the same thing. That's all change is. It's learning. People do say to me often in enterprises that I own or that I support, there's just too much change going on around here. But if change is learning, can you imagine anyone saying, there's just too much learning going on around here. I'm not going to learn anymore. <laughs> that would be so weird, right? But that's all it is. Change is learning. Here's the next idea. When change is on the horizon, when it's time to envision and then begin to think through what that change is going to be, engage the pump the brakes people, the slow people, and I don't mean they're slow intellectually, they're not. I mean, they wanna slow things down. Engage them right away right away. Don't wait till you've come up with this wonderful plan and idea and then bring the implementers in. Bring them in right out of the gate. Now, of course, you realize that when you do that, they're going to probably sit back with their arms folded and voice their concerns right up front. That's okay. That's okay. Understand what they're actually doing. Uh, when you do that, when you're engaging with them right up front, make sure that you, number one, resource the change because it's going to take time and it's going to take money and it's going to take people. It's going to take something that is either already being used in another area or it's going to take something new in order to bring about the change. So talk about resourcing the change right up front. That will help the slow, wait a second, pump the brakes kind of people get engaged with you. The next idea as you're engaging those folks is to listen very carefully to what they have to say. It's likely they're going to come across in an emotionally negative way. That'll never work. We're all going to die. How on earth are we going to do that when we're also doing this, right? And you will have a, a desire to just slap down their arguments. But don't. Listen carefully to the potential problems. What are they actually saying? Because it's incredibly worthwhile. If you blow past the stuff that they say, then you are just going to experience it later. So experience it now when it's theoretical. All right, here's the third idea. Use what I call the 
tetrasizing model about work. You've played the Tetris video game before. I've spoken about it in, in the videos on our Hilt Academy YouTube site, and I've also spoken about it in one of our podcasts back in the day here. You've played the Tetris game before. Here's the idea. If you have it, it's just a big screen, and there are geometric shapes that come in from the top, and you're supposed to move the geometric shapes till they all fit together like a puzzle. And when they do at the bottom of the screen, then that whole layer where they're all fitting together, when they're all these blocks all joined together, that layer disappears, giving you more room to play the game. But if a piece comes in from the top and you're not able to move it around so that it fits in and fills in, then it will just stay there. There'll be a hole. You won't be able to fill it in. And now you'll have less room to move and more pieces will come in and less room to move. And because the inventor of the game Tetris was probably pure evil, the game actually speeds up. The less room you have on the screen to move things around, the faster the pieces come in until eventually you lose. Mm, game over, right? It's not possible to win Tetris because it just keeps going and going and going. So to Tetrisize your work means this, basically this. You want your work, your organization to have capacity. Depending on what the organization is, you probably want room at the top of the screen that is about 20% of the screen, maybe 25% to move things around. You don't want people in your organization to be at 100% capacity. You want them to be at around 80% capacity, especially if it's a high judgment, high innovation, high creative kind of organization. About 80% capacity, meaning they have 20% of their day, of their week, of their month to move things around. They're not doing nothing, but they're thinking and they're making sure that their judgment is applied. If it's the kind of organizations where people are doing the exact same work all the time, then you can have them be up to 90% of their capacity. So you want room at the top of the screen, all right? So that's job number one. How do you do that? You never say yes to a new idea coming in at the top of the screen without simultaneously removing something off of the bottom of the screen because you're at capacity. Of course, you can gain capacity by making a bigger screen. That means getting more people, getting more money, more money and people, more time. You can make the screen bigger, but always start with saying, okay, yes, this is a great idea, but let's make sure that if we add this in the top, we are simultaneously removing something off of the bottom. There's several ways to remove things off the bottom. You can just do them, do them almost, just get them done, get them done. They don't have to be perfect. Just get them out the door, do it. You can delay it. We're doing it in, we were planning on doing it in this year. We're going to, we're going to delay it till next year. You can delegate it, which means you can hand it off to a subcontractor, somebody outside of your organization, somebody in another department, somebody in another wing, somebody in a completely different company or organization or not in profit to do. And now it's not on your list and 95% of it is gone. Or you can just drop it. We were going to do this. We've invested time and energy and money in it, but because of these new things coming in, which we didn't even envision back in the day, we are going to actually just drop this. That's the hardest thing to do, by the way, because somebody loves it. <laughs> it's their baby. It's going to be hard to drop it. So do it, delay it, delegate it drop it. Those are the ways you open up the Tetris model, all right? So those are the three things you do when you're going to engage the slow people. And again, <laughs> I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, slow doesn't mean they dumb. It just means that they are saying slow down, not so fast, okay? When you engage them, make sure that you're going to resource the change, that you're going to listen carefully to potential problems that they are going to suggest because they, they're right, and use the Tetris model. What are we going to take off our plate before we add this thing to the top? All right, so point one, change is learning. Point two, engage those slow people right away. Here's the third idea. Allow time to pass between the creation of the idea and the beginning of the implementation of the change. The bigger the change, the more time needs to pass. People need to acclimate themselves to the idea. Here's the fourth idea. Talk openly in your organization about the tension between the go 
and the no, slow down people because the tension is not a bad thing. Talk openly that I know these people over here want to rush ahead. These people over here want to slow down. This is not a bad tension. Talk openly about it, even as you present the ideas for growth or change or adding something new. All right, here's the next idea. Give authority quickly to the slow down people so that they can control what they need to control. And by that, I mean, give them the authority to decide what they're going to drop or delay or delegate or just do in a half-assed kind of manner to get it out the door. Give them the authority to figure that out, okay? Here's the last idea in this list of six ideas. What if you are the slow person, the person who says, ah, I want to grow more slowly. I got to pump the brakes. You want to avoid being labeled as the negative Ned or negative Nancy, okay? In fact, there's a great deal. I talk a lot about this in our uh, in our video on the Hilt Academy, H-I-L-T Academy on YouTube. Go look for that and look for the video that talks in, in detail about how to avoid being labeled as the negative Ned or the negative Nancy. I give you quite a bit of tips in there, but here's the main thing you can walk away with in that is this. You don't want to be labeled as the person who always says no because people will actually work around you and they won't tell you what's going on until it's too late for you to influence it. You don't want to be the, yeah, that'll never work kind of person. Don't do that. Don't let yourself be that kind of person or labeled that way. And here's how you get around it. The main idea is always start with the word yes. Yes, when an idea is presented, even though inside you're screaming, no, you might even be screaming, hell no, we're all going to die, <laughs> right? Start with, okay, yeah. I see that. That's a that's a good idea. Then follow up with a question. If we do that, how are we then, and jettison your sarcasm, going to be able to do this as well? If we do that, what do we then do with this over here? And do it with a smile on your face so that people will want to engage you as early as you possibly can. All right? So full circle now. You're in the middle of something, you're trying to make it happen, and you're experiencing resistance. There's a pushback to your idea of growth. You want this, and it's just not happening. Even though up front everyone said, yes, let's do it, you're experiencing some sort of pump the brakes thing that's going on. What's going on there? There's a natural tension between the go and the slow people. And that tension is not a bad thing. If you engage it up front, if you really listen to the people who want to pump the brakes, then you will be able to, as you address the challenges that they bring up, you will be able to grow and grow in a way that is much more effective than you probably initially imagined. But if you don't engage those people, they will probably end up unwittingly sabotaging the growth. And the history, the lore that will develop around growth will be, we have so many ideas here, but they're all bad ideas. That's what people will start to think and say, and you'll start to shrink your organization and become a very fearful organization. Engage the slow people early. <laughs> Even as I say that, oh, if someone were to walk in the room and hear this podcast while you're just hearing this, you're, while you're listening to it, people will be thinking, what do you mean by the slow people? <laughs> They're not mentally slow. They just have their foot on the brake because they know how hard it's going to be to implement this growth. Listen to them. They're worth listening to. They may not be very fun to listen to, but they're really worth listening to. All right, my friends, there you have it. I have a little bit of this George Remus left. I've got about an 
inch and a half left on this cigar, this fat bottom Betty cigar, which is really good. That tells you a lot about this cigar. If I can smoke it clear down to an inch and a half and still enjoy it, because I've got a full beard and mustache. If you've not seen me before, I've got a full beard and mustache, and that could catch on fire if the cigar gets too close. <laughs> How was the George Remus? Well, it's it tasted a little bit like burnt hair and hot, salty garbage. <sighs> well, hopefully I'll avoid that, but the cigar is great. You know what, my friend? You're doing good work. I'd love to hear from you. If this was helpful to you, send me an email, dhicks at dhicks.com. Drop me an email. I'd love to hear how this hit you. Was it worthwhile? And most of all, what I want to hear is, did you try the George Remus bourbon? And if so, what did you think? Ah, you're doing good work. Keep it up. Thanks for joining me in today's School of Leadership. This podcast is part of the Archimedes Experiment, leveraged wisdom from the world's most effective leaders. If you're interested in more, go to my website, dhicks.com. Remember, my first name has only one E. Well, you'll find more short and helpful podcast books and blog posts. If this was helpful, maybe even share it with some of your friends. Have a great day.